0: Hi boys and girls, welcome back to Coast Access Radio Storytime. Today we're starting a new book called The Ghost House by New Zealand writer Bill Nagelkirk. It's about David and his family who live in Christchurch near the Red Zone. The Red Zone is a strange, spooky wilderness that's returning to nature after earthquakes destroyed the homes. One day, David blunders into the Forbidden Area. Chapter 1 Unsuccessful in his bid to begin living a normal life again, David Parkhouse leaves home that morning in a bluster, and a tearing hurry, shouting, not fair, at his parents and at the doctor, slamming two doors on the way out, and then running, running, running into the blue January day, into a wilderness of rampant greenery. And with empty pockets too. No dollars, no cents, not even his precious cell phone. He's never left that behind, not ever. Not until today. No mask either. His parents will be raging, probably more about the mask than the phone. Anyway, they've restricted him to within calling distance, and that literally means what it says. A human shout he can hear, not an electronic ringtone he can change to silent and ignore. But now he is beyond all call or cry, inside the Christchurch red zone, a place he has never set foot before. After a while of blurred running, David comes to a sudden stop. His breathing is all gasps and wheezes. He had no idea he would still feel like this, exhausted to his bones, angry and lost Hands resting on knees, eyes closed, he lowers his head, struggling for normal. At long, long last, he feels well enough to open his eyes and raise his head. Off to one side, close to where his mad run has ended, he spies a slim rectangle of wood, grasped by green fingers of long grass. Curious, David pries the fingers apart. There is writing on the wood. Dulo. a name? Underneath he's able to decipher several smaller, oddly spelled words. Dearest Hound, I miss you terribly. He reads this inscription more than once before he can make proper sense of it. The word hound reminds him of the terrifying dog in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. He's only just recently watched a movie version of it, one of Dad's favourites, with some old-time actors. Do can't have been nearly as scary, otherwise they wouldn't be terribly missed. David guesses he is standing on the grave of a kid's much-loved pet. Unless the grave marker has ended up here from somewhere else, he has no way of knowing. This place is still called the Red Zone, more than ten years after the earthquakes. But David, as someone who has run into it for the first time has always thought of it as the dead zone. Hmm. And isn't that really the best name for it? A lost and abandoned space, empty, deserted. Finding this memorial to Dulo seems to prove his point. With a still angry flip of his toe, he kicks the dearest town marker into touch. Then he carries on. If he goes back home now, so soon, he'll prove his parents' point that he isn't ready yet for normal. But he can't stop thinking about the stupid bit of wood, dead doulo and the childish spelling. Terribly is the way David himself has felt now for a long time. Perhaps it's a truer way of spelling the feelings that come with everything he's been through. Deep down, he wishes he hadn't kicked the marker away. Chapter 2 David catches glimpses of the house as he trudges aimlessly across the red zone that be drowsy summer's morning. At first it's just flickers of greying weatherboards between brown trunks and green leaves. He comes closer and sees that the house is sheltered and disguised, camouflaged in fact by a circle of trees that seem to dance around it. Apart from a spiky Huraika and a cypress, which he recognises because Mum pointed them out to him in their own garden, he doesn't know the names of the other trees. Many are natives, the sort he's seen on bush walks, evergreen, and spreading thickly together to form what seems like an impenetrable hedge. Even closer, he realises they're not all trees. Some are flowering shrubs that have grown tall and wide and tree-like, without anyone left to trim and prune them. A couple look familiar, a camellia and a rhododendron. David finds it hard to believe there's really a house behind all this. The many times they've driven through the red zone to get into town, he's noticed one or two still inhabited places, but those are all close to the roadside, not like this house that seems to be stuck smack in the middle, an island in a sea of green. There are countless forsaken sections all around him where houses of various shapes and sizes, materials and colours used to to nudge one another, where streets networked and intersected, where people laughed and cried, played, worked, drove cars, rode bikes, propelled scooters, rollerbladed and roller-skated, all before the earthquakes and the thousands of aftershocks happened And everything changed. Just as everything changed for David too. But for him it was a different island, different city, different house. And then the biggest change of all, the one that ruined the best thing about their move to the South Island. The change that changed David himself, stopped him from being normal, from doing anything remotely normal, especially from playing cricket. Later on, Covid stuck its unwanted nose in, making what was already bad even worse. His mum is now always extra vigilant. His dad is more anxious than ever. The only exception seems to be Amber. But then, his older sister has never been one to give much away. She's good at keeping her thoughts to herself, just like this house keeps itself so well hidden, but not for much longer. David moves closer. Chapter 3 Maybe David's asleep and dreaming it. Maybe the hints of grey weatherboards were nothing more than a mirage, like a heat haze in a desert, or something much more interesting and exciting than just a dream or a mirage. In the months gone by, David's had a lot of time on his hands to develop his powers of imagination. Now he tantalises himself with the notion that this could be a time-travelling ghost house that has parked itself in the red zone at the exact same moment that he is passing through it. Given David's last name, it is a distinct possibility. Or what if... But then he stops fantasising. When he squints carefully through the hand-holding, arm-waving, capering trees and shrubs... You can see that the house is real enough, not a vision, not a dream, but a ghost house? Maybe. The place must be deserted even though it's still standing, apparently solid and forever. David turns away from the house, his eyes following the outline of a narrow driveway, now tall strutted with weeds, that pushes its way from the distant, neglected street up to the house. He can be pretty sure that the driveway was once laid down with gravel, not concrete, because of the many small river stones that still lie scattered here and there like beads from a broken necklace. Because the driveway is so long, David guesses that the house must have been on a back section, screamed from the road by another house in front of it. There's nothing left of that one, though. It almost seems as if the Red Zone enjoys playing a bit of a guessing game even from his own house and the street he lives in. David has been able to identify lines of shrubs and bushes and trees that show roughly where property boundaries used to be. These graphs of geometric greenery are everywhere in the red zone, but the more precise boundary divisions, the wooden and corrugated iron fences, are long gone. David's stomach somersaults and sinks when the word boundaries comes to mind. In his head, he hears the shout of four, and in his imagination, he sees the moment the ball hits a boundary, leaping over it, propelled by an irresistible force. That force is Brendan Doherty scoring his first four of the match. Brendan is a couple of years older than David, and the captain of his cricket team. After all, the game cancellations due to the lockdowns, the team is back at the park this morning, playing a club from across town. The park where David should be too. The rest of the team wanted him to come and encouraged them from the sidelines. But David, he's never been a sidelines sort of person. He's what the others call a player's player, happiest when he's fielding, or waiting to take his turn with the bat. Brendan is bound to follow his fall with a six. David had discovered that's the way Brendan operates, dead slow at first, looking destined to go out for a duck, before building up enough confidence and stamina to send the ball hurtling in every direction. Brendan can hit all sorts spinners, googlies, fastballs, and slow balls. But there comes a time when he, like every other player, drops his concentration for a split second and then he's out. Once or twice, David has been next in the betting line-up after Brendan. Third man in. But not for ages now. Not today. And not next week either. David wonders how well he would have played had he been playing, had he been allowed play. First thing this morning, he knew perfectly well he was perfectly fit to take part in what could easily have been the most perfect of matches on the most perfect of summer cricketing days. He'd even put on his cricketing shirt in anticipation, but the doctor disagreed. Still too soon, David, I think, she said, and David's parents had sided with her. Ordinarily, David would never have shouted at any doctor, except this doctor happened to be his one and only auntie, who was in town for a conference and had popped in to say hello and to see how things were going. David's usual doctor might have said, probably would have said, exactly the same as David's auntie doctor, but then that would have been a whole different ball game. Families should support one another, thinks David, not gang up on their youngest member now exhausted after his run he suspects his auntie doctor was right after all so here he is deep within the earthquake red zone minus his cell phone and the normally ever-present mask alone with his tangled thoughts having passed through abandoned gardens where flowers continue to bloom and blaze, and where the branches of old fruit trees look as if they'll soon be bending down with the weight of heavy harvests. Where there seem to be a million bees buzzing somewhere close by, or maybe much further away, the humming wafting through the air like sweet pollen on the shifting sea breeze. And now this house. A mirage? A dream? A ghost house? It waits. Chapter 4 The House Waits There doesn't seem to be any easy, obvious way through the ring of trees. It seems the only thing to do is for David to make his way around them. He can't really be bothered finding an opening, if there is one, but at the same time, he's reluctant to give up before he's even tried. As it turns out, there's a tight but hopeful gap like an invitation between the camellia and the rhododendron. David begins slowly and painstakingly to ease his way through. The red zone is quiet, but this snarled in-between land of branches, twigs and thorny shoots is quieter still. While David can still hear the bees buzzing, their drone is muted. Maybe they're not bees at all he thinks, suddenly anxious. Maybe what he's hearing is simply a, a noise inside his head. He feels as if the protective screen of greenery is trying to drag him down and he's suddenly had enough of being hugged by these trees. He wishes he could fling his arms wide apart like an umpire to ward off their incessant grasping and tugging, but that's impossible. All he can do is struggle his way through the remainder of the gap. Then he's there, landed in the wilderness of weeds and long grasses that was once a garden, breathing heavily. As if boundaries hadn't been bad enough, he's very much aware that he's also let the words "ball" and game slip with sudden stealth into his brain. Everything spins back to the cricket match he's been forced to miss, As far as David is concerned, Cricket and the great team he joined was the only worthwhile aspect of the move down south. Slip and then spins as well. Go to sleep, brain, go to sleep. But his brain doesn't go to sleep. David's brain, and therefore David himself, both remain on high alert. He's got the whole picture in front of him now, The squatting house, with its cloudy window eyes, staring at him. The door mouth, stern, almost frowning. Or is that David's overactive imagination at work again? Are those tears I see? The house seems to ask. That's terrible. The house doesn't sympathise. But neither does it mock David's tears. It simply waits. Chapter 5 Perhaps now would be a strategic time to retreat, to get back home to where his parents and Auntie Doctor, and possibly Amber, may be anxiously debating if they should send a search party into the red zone to find David and bring him back. He can return to face the music, or he can stagnate right here, waiting for the all-too-familiar feelings of self-doubt and isolation to swamp him completely, as they've done so often in the recent past. Neither option sounds very attractive and both rely on David giving up on himself and his own determination to leave the past behind him. A player's player needs to stay ahead of the game. So David gets up, wipes the back of his hand over his eyes and squares off against the house which stares right back at him, dry-eyed stares as if it wants to tell him something. What are you doing here, house? David hears himself asking it. He waits for a reply. It comes. I'm old, says the house, and starting to disintegrate. Help me. Save me. Indeed, the house is old, splendidly intact, but also splintered, bruised, wrinkled, with age. A house on the sidelines, its batting average ignored, its lifetime tally of runs forgotten. The camouflage of trees suits it perfectly, because it almost looks as if the house is changing back into a tree itself. Had David known anything about old houses, he might have recognised this one as a villa from the turn of the previous century. A bay villa, to be exact, constructed in about 1895, of Kauri weatherboards and remu panelling, a ceiling with a high stud, a steep front gable with barges rounded at either end, a large but plain bay window, patterned with pieces of coloured glass that are held in place by leaded strips, and a narrow sheltering veranda with a sloping roof. An original that had probably been in that same spot from its beginning. A mirage? A dream? A ghost house? David doesn't know what to think. All he knows for sure is that the house makes him uneasy. The house? Or what's inside it? Help me! Save me! I can't help you. "'David tells the house. "'Or save you. "'I'm just a kid. "'What can I do?' "'Come inside,' says the house. "'Maybe I can show you.' "'No way,' says David very much out loud this time. "'He backs away and finds himself hemmed in "'by the trees and bushes and flowering shrubs. "'He turns and searches for the gap he came through, "'but everything looks different from this side.' And it takes him forever, or so it seems, to find the opening. The wind hasn't strengthened yet. Without warning, the front door of the house bangs open, before slamming shut with an air splitting sound, like a jackhammer through concrete. David ploughs recklessly through the gap. A low branch trips him up, and he lands, knees first, on the driveway among the river stones that look like beads. Stupid! Stupid house! David scoops up a handful of gravel, gets to his feet and lobs the stones as high and as far as he can. Some fall harmlessly down through the branches, landing close to where they were thrown. Several turn, ricochet back onto David's head, making him swear. But others pass successfully through the trees, reaching the veranda, onto which they clatter like heavy hailstones. The door of the house opens and closes, opens and closes, shouting back at David. Again he runs, and despite his disorientation, somehow manages to find his way home. Chapter 6 Dad is looking out of the kitchen window when David returns. Mum is murdering weeds in the vegetable garden. Normal! Everyday things done by people living ordinary lives, except life has been anything but normal for the Parkhouse family these past 15 months. The garden got off to a flying start when they first moved in, but has been neglected ever since. Now Mum is working hard to bring it back to life when she can find the time. Back at the end of November, Dad had just managed to herd them together to watch a movie, when Mum got a call on her phone. She came back into the lounge, looking both pleased and guilty. I've been offered that part-time job at the garden centre I applied for, she said, to all of them, and to no one in particular. Good for you, said Dad. David looked at Amber, who simply shrugged back at him. I didn't tell either of you beforehand that I was applying, Mum said. I wasn't sure how you'd feel, if I wasn't around as much. She reached down for the TV's remote control, taking longer than necessary. I haven't accepted the job offer yet. Will you manage if I do? You go for it, Amber said. We'll manage fine. It's about time you did something for yourself. I've missed going out to work, Mum said. What about you, David? Are you okay with it? A yes from me," David said. "When would you start? Early in the new year, I think," Mum said, remote in hand, scrutinising him. "Is that too soon for you?" "Nah, it's cool." "We should celebrate," said Amber. "Takeaways for tea tonight," said Dad. The conversation, when David replays it on his head, goes something like this. Mum. How could you just have run off the way you did? Dad, is Auntie Doctor gone? Mum, yes. David, good. Mum, no, not good. She was very disappointed. She's leaving this afternoon and came over especially to say goodbye to you. She had to send you a text message instead. And we heard it arrive. Dad, because you've left your phone behind... That meant we didn't have a clue where you were or how to find out. You might have got lost or Amber muttering. No big loss. Mum, where have you been? David, nowhere in particular. Just into the red zone. Amber, woohoo! Zombie land. Where's zombies land? Mum, and did you take a fresh mask from the box? David, I forgot. Mum, or well, we don't want you going off there again on your own. David. I was outside the whole time and I didn't see anybody either. It was okay. I'm okay too. Amber. You're right. Dad, you don't know who you might have come across or what might have happened to you. You're early on into your recovery. You still have to take extra care as well as give yourself more time. David. I'm much better already. And you see danger everywhere, Dad. Dad, that's what the world's like nowadays. Dangerous, unpredictable. If anyone should understand that, it's us. Remember, that's the way the world's always been. Mum, worse now, and even worse for a kid who's immunocompromised. If anything had happened, there's no way we would have known, no way of getting hold of you, no way for you to have contacted us. David. Yeah, it was stupid of me to leave my phone and mask behind. I won't do that again. I did see a really old house, right inside the red zone, pretty much hidden. It was deserted. At least I think it was. Dad. I hope you didn't go near it. You don't know if it is safe or if someone is lurking there. David. Dad! Well, there might be. I mean... They might be perfectly harmless in themselves, but if they have the virus, they could still do you loads of harm, that's all I'm saying. Mum, yes, keep away from that place. All it would take is for your foot to go through a rotten floorboard, and there you'd be, stuck with a broken ankle. David, I'd call you on my phone then, wouldn't I? Mum, no, not if it happened today, you wouldn't. What they said was true, Ember says. You really did worry them today. They worry all the time. Can you blame them? There's been endless things for them to worry about. The bloody pandemic was the icing on the panic cake. And then you decide to run off the way you did. That was just about the last straw. You're not being fair to them, especially not to Mum, now that she's not here 24-7, to keep an eye on you. There's no need for either of them to worry any more or to want to watch my every move. I'm getting better every day. You didn't look it to me when you got home. David ignores that. I can do things for myself. I should be able to do what I want when I want to. Take the cricket match today. Stuff cricket, says Amber. You used to enjoy it, says David. His sister's become so volatile lately snarling at on one second, supportive the next, but these days more noticeably off side than on side. You really believe you're up for it today, she continues. Don't kid yourself. The rest of us know you weren't, and why is everything about you all the time? It isn't. I can, I should, I want. Just give us a break, will you? Think about us for a change. Everything we've had to go through. It's not just your life that's been on hold. I was 13 when we arrived, only a year older than you are now. I haven't had time for all the things I've wanted to do. And to top that off, I'm expected to babysit you during the holidays. Then you shouldn't have sounded so happy about Mum going back to work. David throws back. And besides, for a while I didn't know if I was going to have time for anything at all. How do you think that feels? Awful, I know, but the thing is, Davy, you should be grateful that you're alive. I am, David says fiercely. I just want to get on with proper living. Now, not later on. Amber looks out the front window into the red zone. It's right on our doorstep, she says, like a massive private garden that goes on and on forever and we've never had enough time or energy to explore it. David joins her at the window. They weren't the only reasons, he says. I remember not long after we came here, you told me the red zone looked like a real scary place. You didn't want to explore it. I did, but they now never got the chance. Hey, maybe now I can show you the old house I came across. Amber shrugs. I'm so used to the red zone being there, it doesn't feel scary anymore. I guess it never really was. All the other things that happened, they were the really scary bits. Not knowing what was going to happen to you, or to us, was like not knowing what was out there in the red zone. We sort of had an idea. We'd heard stuff about it before we came. But we couldn't be sure. Not unless we actually went into it and saw it for ourselves. But we didn't. And now the red zone doesn't really interest me. Why'd you snitch on me if I went to see the house again on Monday, by myself? Why would you even want to do that? David has no handy reply. He's not sure himself why. Maybe because he half thinks the house expects him to. Monday, Amber says slowly. She pauses, as if waiting for a certain response. When nothing happens, she continues, do what you like. I can't stop you. You can go and put a foot through all floorboards, one after the other, and die there, all alone, if that's what you want. I don't care. She walks away, leaving David floundering for a reply. He's due to find out very soon if he has the all clear. He can understand Amber being mightily pissed off with him, but even so, how could she say what she's just said to him? It's so harsh. Well, what a great beginning, isn't it? Do you think houses can speak? Maybe ghost houses can. I wonder if anyone is living in the old villa. We'll find out next time. Goodbye. Happy reading.